Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You're listening to the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack. I can hardly be alone in considering Charlie Hebdo's cartoons that satirize Islam to be not merely tasteless and brainless, but brainlessly reckless as well, wrote the author Deborah Eisenberg. Eisenberg was referring to a drawing of the Prophet Muhammad with a bomb in his headdress, published by the scabrous left-wing anti-clerical French publication Charlie Hebdo. The cartoon was the pretext for two Muslim brothers who forced their way into the publication's office on January 7th, 2015, and shot 12 dead, injuring another 11, before fleeing the scene in a getaway car, shouting, We have avenged the Prophet Muhammad. We have killed Charlie Hebdo. Was it the primary purpose of the magazine to mortify and inflame a marginalized demographic? Eisenberg asked rhetorically. It would seem not, she went on to say. And yet the staff apparently considered the context of their satire and its wide-ranging potential consequences to be insignificant or even an inducement to redouble their efforts as if it were of paramount importance to demonstrate the right to smoke a cigarette by dropping your lit match into a dry forest. Eisenberg perhaps came closest among American writers to saying publicly that the blaspheming cartoonists had brought the killing on themselves. But she was, of course, not alone in her moral disapproval of the actions of those who died in a hail of bullets when they treated the strictures of one of the world's great religions, Islam, with the same irreverence with which they treated all of the other targets of their satire. Eisenberg was one of 242 writers and publishing world functionaries who affixed their name to a letter of protest addressed to PEN, the International Organization of Poets, Editors, and Novelists, an organization which campaigns on behalf of the freedom of expression of writers around the world. There is a critical difference between staunchly supporting expression that violates the acceptable and enthusiastically rewarding such expression, the letter reads. The magazine seems to be entirely sincere in its anarchic expressions of disdain toward organized religion. But in an unequal society, equal opportunity offense does not have an equal effect. Power and prestige are elements that must be recognized in considering almost any form of discourse, including satire. The writers go on to say that to certain segments of French society, a population that is shaped by the legacy of France's various colonial enterprises and that contains a large percentage of devout Muslims, Charlie Hebdo's cartoons of the Prophet must be seen 
as being intended to cause further humiliation and suffering. Salman Rushdie said, if Penn, as a free speech organization, can't defend and celebrate people who have been murdered for drawing pictures, then frankly, the organization is not worth the name. All of these statements struck me as astonishing and indicative of a whole new phase in intellectual life. Something had happened, something drastic, something that I did not really understand, although I knew it to be rooted in ideas that were not new, that had been around for many decades, originating in the 1980s and the 1990s, comprising the first upsurge of political correctness from that period. What we were seeing now was the sudden reemergence of those ideas, and in a very changed context, and in a context in which the balance of forces had altered, where suddenly it seemed to be the case that all of the energy of the most energetic members of the rising generation was invested in new ideas of the harm and the injury that was done through free speech, and the need to fetter it, the need to constrict it, to limit it, to be conscious of the fact that the marginalized could not, by definition, confront the powerful, who are held to be powerful by virtue of the fact of their racial, sexual, and other identities, could not meet each other on an equal playing field, and that the idea of neutral institutions was a sentimental fiction that would invariably, to the extent that we adhered to those prescriptions of how to design societal institutions, inevitably reproduce a stratified society into perpetuity until we took active measures to favor the marginalized over the non-marginalized. This was an idea that for some reason always seemed to prevail on Twitter, always had the energy behind it. Something about the new medium was inherently hostile. Uh, many people were first introduced to the notion of what would come to be called cancel culture during the Cancel Colbert campaign, in which Twitter first began to impinge upon the wider media sphere through activity generated by a group of dedicated activists who referred to themselves as social justice warriors, a term of art drawn from the campaigns between progressive activists and reactionaries that had begun on message boards, blogging platforms such as LiveJournal and Tumblr. All of these were a distant rumor to me of online activity that I didn't pay much attention to, but that I was increasingly becoming aware was going to shape the media sphere in the years to come. It was right around this time that we began to see the emergence of terms such as microaggression, trigger warning, and the new set of premises about the nature and the value of free speech from those whose prior experience of free speech was not in the textual realm and was not driven by the image of either the crusading journalist or the heroic artist who struggles against convention and seeks the freedom to do so, but instead came to be associated with the troll and the flame war and with 
brigading by large groups of harassers. All of this was beginning to come into view. From the underbelly of the internet, journalists began to find themselves on the open platform that was Twitter, which allowed anyone to speak with anyone, with very minimal set of controls, including blocking and muting. All of this was a truly eye-opening moment for me, making me conscious of the distance that we had traveled from the basic axioms regarding the desirability, value, purpose, and defense of free speech that I had always taken for granted. Something new was in the air, and in keeping with prior interviews that had punctuated the 18 months that preceded them. Political correctness is a style of politics in which the more radical members of the left attempt to regulate political discourse by defining opposing views as bigoted and illegitimate. Two decades ago, the only communities where the left could exert such hegemonic control lay within academia, which gave it an influence on intellectual life far out of proportion to its numeric size. Today's political correctness flourishes most consequentially on social media, where it enjoys a frisson of cool and vast new cultural reach. And since social media is also now the milieu that hosts most political debates, the new PC has attained an influence over mainstream journalism and commentary beyond that of the old. So wrote the New York Magazine journalist Jonathan Chait in February of 2015 in a cover story for that magazine. Chait would go on to refer to the towering presence in the psychic space of politically active people in general, and the left in particular, occupied by political correctness. Quoting the journalist Rebecca Traster in The New Republic, Chait wrote, All over social media there dwell armies of unpaid but widely read commentators ready to launch hashtag campaigns and circulate change.org petitions in response to the slightest of identity politics missteps. He further went on to declare that political correctness is not a rigorous commitment to social equality so much as a system of left-wing ideological repression. Not only is it not a form of liberalism, it is antithetical to liberalism, noting that indeed its most frequent victims turn out to be liberals themselves. At the foundation of Chait's analysis is a distinction he draws between the left and liberalism, noting that liberals and leftists both, quote, want to make society more economically and socially egalitarian, but arguing, as he does, that liberals still hold to the classic Enlightenment political tradition that cherishes individual rights, freedom of expression, and the protection of a kind of free political marketplace. He then goes on to note that the Marxist left has always dismissed liberalism's commitment to protecting the rights of its political opponents. That, quote, the modern left has borrowed the Marxist critique of liberalism 
and substituted race and gender categories for economic ones, and goes on to argue that, quote, liberals believe, or ought to believe, that social progress can continue while we maintain our traditional ideal of a free political marketplace where we can reason together as individuals. In his view, quote, political correctness challenges that bedrock liberal ideal. While politically less threatening than conservatism, the far right still commands far more power in American life, the PC left is actually more philosophically threatening. It is an undemocratic creed. He goes on to conclude that politics in a democracy is still based on getting people to agree with you, not making them afraid to disagree. It's fascinating to look back seven years at an event that represents a kind of passageway from what I refer to as the before times and the world of the ideological succession. Not a very PC thing to say does not contain, for instance, the word cancel culture within it, but refers to two discrete instances of student demands for the cancellation of events. In one case, when protesters at Smith College demanded the cancellation of a commencement address by Christine Lagarde, managing director of the International Monetary Fund, and the recent cancellation of a performance of the musical Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson after protests by Native American students at UCLA. The public was glimpsing on social media for the first time the leading edge of a movement of a coalition of activist professionals and professional activists who would work together to advance a non-electoral politics of institutional capture, whereby various liberal, professional, academic, nonprofit institutions would prove unable to defend themselves against an onslaught of internal politics, often advanced by young recent graduates, junior staffers at these organizations, who brought a whole new moralizing and crusading spirit to their work, demanding that the organizations they work for take explicit stances on a variety of political and moral issues and relinquish the posture of impartiality and neutrality that liberal institutions tended to rely on as the basis of their authority in favor of a new moral clarity which purported to take a stand on behalf of the marginalized and against the forces of the status quo. Chait's piece was the first of many salvos in an ongoing conflict to come. It helped to set the tone, and above all, it galvanized a kind of response in opposition to itself that let many in the media world understand a new balance of forces. One began to see for the first time the sudden and spontaneous coordination of a powerful media world consensus, whereby Journalists speaking to one another through the medium of Twitter manufactured an instantaneous in-group consensus that there was something deeply wrong and deeply problematic about the piece 
and about its author. Over the next seven years, we would see the radicalism to which Chait refers move from the outer margins of the discourse to the very center to obtain hegemony within the institutions. The historian Tressie McMillan Cottom tweeted that Chait is journaling the angst of his privilege. Alex Perrine scoffed at Chait that you're spinning a few stories of people stung by ad hominem attacks into a grave threat for democracy is, in my opinion, a larger problem. The writer Doreen St. Felix put it more simply, Chait is a piece of shit. The response was not directly coordinated, but was generated spontaneously by the prevailing mood on social media that was anxious to see new voices enter the conversation and tired of voices purporting to speak on behalf of a neoliberal center left, consisting of white males like Jonathan Chait who worked for publications like the New Republic that explicitly at times set itself up as a gatekeeper for liberal opinion and is explicitly acting as a firewall against the totalizing critique of liberalism enacted by radical feminists such as Catherine McKinnon or the speech codes advocated by the critical race theorists. Chait was the successor to a generation of journalists who had resisted the push into mainstream influence of the dense and rebarbative ideas generated by left academia which had begun to exercise an influence on left activist spaces. The New Republic was one of several publications that helped to fashion a kind of cordon sanitaire around the radical, multiculturalist, postmodernist, postcolonial, feminist, and queer ideas percolating from academia in the 1980s and the 1990s. Chait was a kind of successor figure of the New Republic intellectuals. And he confronted a resurgent movement on behalf of political correctness, where the balance of forces had drastically altered. Few could have anticipated at the time Chait was writing the defenestration at the New York Times of an op-ed editor who was widely reputed to be a successor to the overall editorship of the whole paper on the basis of a staffer uprising. Few could have anticipated the CEOs of the company's largest investment banks kneeling in solidarity with the nationwide protest movement on behalf of a black man who died with his neck beneath the knee of a Minneapolis police officer. Over the next seven years, the ideology that Chait referred to as political correctness would run the table, install itself at the top of the bestseller lists, and become the subject of a thousand workplace training sessions in which America's corporate employees were inculcated into the tenets of white supremacy culture, individualism, objectivity, sense of urgency, in which Hollywood studios at major stock exchanges, ratings agencies, and a range of institutions at the commanding heights of global capitalism 
would act in unison to establish racial quotas and compete with one another in blasting out rainbow messaging, including an announcement by the National Football League that football is gay. What began as a series of protests on social media and hashtag campaigns by those who styled themselves as the tribunes of the downtrodden and the marginalized would come to reign triumphant in every aspect of American culture, from its popular culture to its workplace and professional culture. Who could have anticipated in the year 2015 that a nominee to the Supreme Court would find herself unable to answer the question, what is a woman? The ideological coup begins decades prior to the publication of Not a Very PC Thing to Say. But the shape of things to come suddenly crystallized in that moment. I recently sat down and talked to Jonathan Chait on Zoom to revisit that moment, to look backward and consider its ongoing repercussions. This is Wesley Yang. You are listening to the Year Zero podcast, hosted at Substack at wesleyyang.substack.com. First of all, welcome to the podcast, and we're here with uh, Jonathan Chait, who is uh, a political writer at New York Magazine, and uh, he is the author of a piece back in 2015 called Not a Very PC Thing to Say. Um, that is the subject of today's conversation. Um, I think of the article and the response to the article as kind of an inflection point in the culture that, that revealed to us that we were operating on a whole new set of assumptions. I think the piece was written under that uh, presumption uh, was in, was intended to challenge it and also to uh, you know reestablish a set of principles in the face of it and then the the way that the response worked out I think really told us a lot about the new regime that we were in the process of entering uh, so it's it's one along the signpost of what I call the road to year zero um, and. Uh, you know, my own little boutique bit of private jargon I refer to as ideological succession, meaning that there was there was a there was a way we used to once think about things, and then there was a new way that came into existence, and we are now chronicling uh, that that transition. We we may be at a point where <laughs> uh, we may or may not be at a point where uh, we're seeing another transition to another phase, and I think we'll we'll get to that a little bit later in the conversation. So let's just begin. Can you sort of tell us about the uh, the genesis of the article? Uh, what events and developments uh, led you to uh, think about think it would be a good thing to write this piece? Yeah, you know, let me start with something that I don't think anyone outside the magazine knows, which is that the idea for the piece was not mine. It was Adam Moss's, who was then editor of New York Magazine. I can't remember what specific experience he had. Uh, but it was something in the category of people objected to an article that ran in New York Magazine. And it wasn't just that they said, um, we disagree with this article or this article is wrong or it bothers us, but this article is doing people harm. This article should not exist. Mm. Uh, 
you know, sort of calling into question um, assumptions that that Adam had, had had about how people regard published works. Um, mm. And so he brought that up with me, and I had noticed some of this starting to pop up as well on the left. So I started looking into it and found a whole lot of um, examples that were following this new set of ideological norms that I had come face to face with in college. Uh, there was the PC craze of the late 80s and early 90s. And I think it hit very hard where I was in college at the University of Michigan. So we had a lot of experience of this in Ann Arbor. People I know who went to other universities around that time, I don't think for the most part had the same kind of experience. But, you know, I could, I listed some of the examples in the piece but, you know, we had two speech codes enacted by the university administration that were both struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court during my time mm. on campus. Uh, <laughs> so you know, there was a lot of this going on. What year did you graduate? 1994. And it was already, I think it was already peaking and on its way down when I was there. I mm. think it probably, probably hit around 1987, 1988 in Ann Arbor, mm. peaked, you know, 89, 90, 91. Um, and was on its way down, and, and it was it was a, a different kind of atmosphere in '94 already. Um, mm-hmm. and, I was, and, I, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it and studying it. And I spent a lot of time when I was studying political ph- philosophy, trying to understand and categorize this ideology, and and studying you know some critical race theory and Catherine McKinnon and and the works of people on the left who challenged liberal ideas about discourse. So I really had a pretty firm understanding. But, but this was also something I really hadn't seen. Uh, much at all until around 2014 started to come come back. So um, I was I was primed to think about it, and, and so I so I wrote that piece. Right, and so you had been present when an ideology was in the ascendancy within the university, and at the time it was basically a university-based phenomenon. And then you saw it go into remission, mm-hmm. and you saw the critics um, and writers at the time in part, put it into remission by responding to it. I, I think you must have been reading the, the New Republic at the time yep. and, and the way they were dealing with political correctness at the mm-hmm. time. What were the events? Um, were, were you like a writer at the student newspaper or, or were you directly involved in some of these controversies in Michigan? Yeah, I was a, I was a writer at the student newspaper. I mean, I, I wrote series that is hurls and I wrote a humor column. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of the you know, I made fun of the right and the left. Uh, the left was a pretty good source of of humor just because they had so many of these humorless episodes of trying to shut people down. And that really was the whole context of so much of the political debate we had at the time. People on the left, their program really was to try to stop people they disagreed with from expressing themselves. Mm. Um, that's kind of what we had a very active, camp, active campus political life in Michigan. What the left-wing parties were trying to do was to basically stop um, other groups from organizing or at least getting a student fund. So that was that was what people were arguing about, and I think it was it was well understood. But I've never completely understood why it started, and nor why it went away. But I could see those things happening, and I could also see that a lot of people who were outside of the campus milieu didn't really understand what was happening or why it was happening. And they tended to um, interpret it in the kind of what, what we now call red versus blue dynamic. They, they saw these as arguments between liberals and conservatives, which meant if you were a conservative, you thought conservatives were being persecuted, which wasn't really what was happening for the mm. most part. 
if it was right. liberals who thought, um, oh, this is about my people, my liberals who are who are being unfairly smeared, and that what wasn't what was happening either. Um, mm-hmm. I think before a lot of people outside of campus got a firm understanding of what was really happening. It was it was gone anyway. Right. It was a, a kind of intro left discipline that you saw the most of. Um, so uh, that was in the atmosphere. Uh, could you just kind of go over the the argument of the article? Yeah. I mean, I tried to give a lot of examples of how this was happening. Some of it was on campus. Mm-hmm. Some of it was in um, online communities. Um, there was a group called Binders Full of Women which was a Mm -hmm. sort of online support group for women writers. Um, Mm -hmm. And some people kind of came on and started trying to impose these norms on the whole group. Um, And, and, you know, and a lot of people were sort of unfamiliar with this and it caused a lot of controversy. And, and, you know, a lot of the people on the moderate that is sort of the center left instead of left, left side were, were, were upset about this. And, and they sent me all these debates. And so I, I, I used the, um, I use those debates as, to sort of illustrate how it played out and what it really looked mm-hmm. like in practice. Um, it's, it's happening in activist spaces. And so, and I tried to, although I didn't really have a lot of space to do it, I tried to basically make um, a political philosophy argument. I, as I think I just said, I, I studied some political philosophy in college. So I, that was my understanding. And I tried to make people understand that this was coming from an ideological perspective that wasn't liberal as people should really understand mm-hmm. the term um not not that everyone who practices these norms and uses these terms is on the liberal left in some conscious way but that was really the ideological structure that was animating these these norms of, of, of discourse and debate and those were the assumptions so i tried to i tried to put some of that in there uh to try to explain you know where these people were coming from and um and, and, you know, as you alluded to, the, the, there was a pretty intense reaction to that. Mm-hmm. And so it was framed as, um, you know, like, can this be done? We're, we're aware that attempting to take this on frontally mm-hmm. um, is is a, is likely to generate a response. Yeah. You know, we're operating to some degree as provocateurs, even though we're making a very good faith argument. Um and attempting an analysis and also making a claim, which I think is fundamental to the article that um, that, that one of its one of the chief harms of this is that it will it, is that it will backfire not just electorally but that it will that that it will not serve the ends of right. civil rights movements of social justice causes that mm-hmm. well intentioned people in fact serve so it's mostly an argument about means rather than ends right. because i'm a liberal and i think that the argument i try to make is <laughs> it's not something you can really throw in in an article but i did kind of try to throw it in that like i am a liberal and the idea of liberalism is that you're open to correction right that you're at some level that you acknowledge the possibility like don stuart mill that you're wrong and, and you have to be open to people pointing out you being wrong and if you close yourself off from that possibility then you're then you're going to make errors and you're not going to make life better for people which is what you're setting out to do how much of a response did you expect and how different or similar to the both the scale and the nature of the response did the actual response end up being? I knew there would be a big response. The response was probably even bigger than I expected. Probably bigger than anything I've ever done, maybe. Uh-huh. And, and uh, uh, as you might expect, um, there was a little bit of a contrast between the response I got privately and publicly. Hmm. 
more supportive in private and and more condemnation in in public. Mm. So sometimes from the same people or or, or... no 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 I didn't have anyone who was that two faced. <laughs> right. uh, but I did have some people say you know I agree with what you're saying but I won't defend your right to say it. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> But also, interestingly, um, I've, over the years since I've had more people tell me, usually in mm. private, sometimes in public, I disagreed with you when that article came out, and I now think that you were right about this, than about mm. anything. I mean, mm. I don't know about you, but I find that persuading people <laughs> to change their mind is incredibly hard, and it almost never happens. Um, but it happened here more than on anything I've ever written. People mm. have, have come around. Right. Can can you characterize what the response was and the various lines of it were? Yeah. So um, I thought the most interesting thing that I found is that you had a handful of people on the far left who really disagreed at the root ideological level with where I was coming from. They basically said, mm. these norms and protocols that you're describing are good and we should adapt them instead. Um, mm. For the most part, the overwhelming tone of the response was one of deflection. Mm. Um, it was discomfort um, that I'm attacking people they see as their ideological allies. I'm giving ammunition to the right. And they were insisting that I was expressing self-pity um, that mm. something terrible has happened to me, <laughs> that, that I've been um, shut up and silenced or I've, I'm feeling persecuted. Um, and as I pointed out in my response to the response, there wasn't a single word expressing that sentiment anywhere. I didn't feel that. I don't feel that. I'm extraordinarily <laughs> privileged. My editors commissioned this story. They let me say whatever I want. And I, I realize not everyone can do that, but I, I really can say whatever I want. Um, and I wasn't expressing that, but they were really certain that this was coming from a place of self-pity. And and so it's kind of telling that people felt the need to project that into a piece of writing where that emotion is actually absent. Uh, it it served some kind of need for it to be true that yes. that you would be a beleaguered, embittered white male who was bemoaning something that hurt you personally, right. rather than uh, someone making a principled argument about the meta-discursive norms and values that should regulate the, the process of speech in an open democracy? So a couple things. Um, number one, I do think you're right. I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, to try to explain what, you, what, you, what you're just describing. I think number one, um, there is a real tendency on the left to automatically go to motive as you know as as the reason for people having a point of view and as opposed to assuming you know a good faith disagreement i think that happens across a realm of issues and not just race and gender um number two look i'm i'm a liberal who's criticized the left my whole career there are a lot of people who don't like me for that reason um and 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 are just primed to be to disagree to dismiss that um and and to not like me personally um, because I do that. So, you know, it's very possible if someone else had published this article making the, you know, the, the same case, it wouldn't have had that response. And, you know, and, and I'll give you an example, um, which I've always found super interesting, which is that Barack Obama has made that exact case numerous times mm -hmm. uh, in speeches, in interviews, I mean, um, at length. And 
he does not produce anything like that response. And it's incredible um, <laughs> that there's more response to me than Barack Obama, who obviously is a much more famous and influential person than me. Mm -hmm. um, they don't respond to him. So a big part of this response really is about who is who is making this case um, and how we feel about that person. So he doesn't get this response, and yet he also doesn't carry any of them along with him at, at the also same do. time. That's also that's also correct. And 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 and, and to be fair, I, I actually feel like um, there's there, there's an element of strategy in both the left and the right. Right, the left doesn't mm -hmm. want to acknowledge that a black man has made this argument against political correctness. Right, they want the face to be a white a white man, um, right? Because it undermines them even to acknowledge. Because they're trying to really recruit people on the left for their point of view and, and mm -hmm. every, every good liberal Democrat should be on their side and not on right. the two side. So they don't right. want Obama, but also people on the right want mm. this position to be the position of the democratic party as well. Right. So they don't mm. want to admit that Barack Obama has denounced this. They want to make Barack Obama complicit in all these terrible things that are happening on the left. Mm -hmm. um, so it very much doesn't serve their purposes. So looking back at some of those responses, which I think, you know, it betrays uh, a lot of the kind of innocence of that moment, right? Yeah. Um, and But but you saw uh, one of the more interesting ones was uh, Ras Douthitz, and I don't know if you remember it, but he went on to argue that, you know, this is just a matter, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to frame it as, well, this is only going to backfire and be counterproductive but in fact you know you can win <laughs> through through uh through repressing uh you know your opponents and denying yeah. their right to speak uh and uh and then he cited the example of of gay marriage not so long ago uh you know sasha ischenberg wrote a book about the attainment of gay marriage and he he actually broke out a piece of it for the uh new york times where he pointed out oh in fact cancel culture had quite a bit to do with the fact that the forces that were opposing gay marriage were hobbled in their ability to uh, you know uh, fund campaigns and 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 there's a there's a serious argument to be made that we we would not have this thing were it not for the resort to these kind of tactics I don't think that's what made gay marriage win I, I really <laughs> think it was you know, as soon as people were exposed to the idea and really just had to think about it, mm. really think about it and not just act automatically, the, the merits were obvious to so many people that the politics flipped. I don't think people had to be intimidated out of, of making the contrary case for this argument to prevail. Can, mm. I, also, can I also just make a, a short and maybe snarky point about Ross? Well, look, <laughs> okay. man, Ross is great. I really think might be the best columnist in America. But, no, but um, please do, yes. But, but Ross, I think, on several occasions has somewhat trollingly taken the left side of the left versus liberal debate, maybe because the liberals are sort of the near enemy and the, the left is the far enemy, and he's kind of mm. used them to tweak us. But then yes. in um, July of 2020, when uh, the shit really hit the fan at the New York Times, and people, I think, at the Times were genuinely terrified, um, mm. Ross wrote a column saying, "Like, please God, let the liberals win." Um, so, you know, <laughs> I said, like when his ass was really on the line, I think Ross mm. knew which side he re really wanted to win that in, that civil war. Um, and I, I reminded him of that. Uh, you called him on it. Did you do it in print? Or I did. I might have might have emailed him. I can't remember if it was public. <laughs> 
So uh, one of the responses also was uh, Alex Perrine, who I think he made reference to your exchange with uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. And so I, I do want to touch on that exchange because I also see that as like an, an interesting touchstone and inflection point. And then also the the sort of, um, you know, the end of the old New Republic. And, and you, you wrote about it at the time. The old New Republic were in a way and uh, ideological in, enforcers of the previous consensus and and and, and I guess, uh, you know, if you if you look at the polemic that was directed at them at the time of the succession, um, uh, including Jeet's piece, uh, you know, they, you know, they there's various kind of um, uh, arguments. Some some of them are smears. Some of them are, are actually grounded in the conduct of certain members of the paper of its troubling racial history, um, but also sort of the. Um, just an overall symbolism, and of course there was a time when uh, policing discourse on the Iraq War and so on, and so this was the argument that one made, that you, you had these people that had once been ideological enforcers who who were losing that control, and 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 then you were their representative. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of that question. Um, yeah. I, so I think Tanahasi Coates is, you know, a brilliant writer. Um, I wish he was writing more now. I I miss mm. writing. I don't agree with him all the time. Mm. I, I frequently yeah. disagree, but I learned a lot from him. I thought that was um, a really interesting exchange. And I will say he he said something about the old New Republic that really stuck with me. You know, mm. I, when we were there, you know, the editors thought like, boy, you know, I wish we were more diverse. I wish we had more black writers and um you know, we but it was sort of this wistful um, thing. We didn't really think like anything was stopping people from coming. And and he wrote about how like he saw he read the New Republic and he thought of it as a place he couldn't be because there weren't people who looked like him. And hmm. that struck me like that was so powerful that really struck me like a like a it was a devastating blow to realize my God, you know, he's right. I mean, hmm. and it made me, you know, think when when I was a kid, my um, my best friend, I'm Jewish. My best friend was Gentile. They belonged to a to a country club, and my my parents, you know, said like, well, you know, they don't have Jews there. We can't join there. Um, and uh, I said like, they don't let Jews belong. And they were like, what? I mean, it, like whether there was a formal prohibition on Jews being there or not, or whether people would have let us in or not, wasn't really the point. Like there weren't Jews there. They weren't mm-hmm. going to go there because there weren't Jews there. Um, mm-hmm. And and he looked at it the same way. Like he wouldn't feel comfortable being the only black person there. And and, and that's when he puts it like that, it's completely understandable. So like mm. what I thought was a very open place was to him look like a very closed place. And I think that, mm. you know, that, that really um, made me change the way I thought about it a lot. Mm. Um, look, the new, I mean, as to the other point you're making, look, the new Republic was always part of an argument on the left that was ongoing. I mean, it wasn't the only, um, opinion magazine ever. I mean, there was always the nation, the, the American prospect. There were always people who had different points of view. Often, there were often different points of view within the New Republic. So this idea that it was had this enforcing um, mm. role, I, I don't think really tracks. Mm. The 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 Ta-Nehisi Coates phenomenon was building, and at the time. You had your exchange, mm-hmm. a couple bloggers having a debate on a discrete issue. Yep. Um, 
but it did seem to be one of the moments where his phenomenon was starting to build. I don't yeah. think his reparations piece had been printed at that time, but when yeah. that happened, yeah. he, he a phase shift happened and he yeah. ceased to be uh, another blogger yeah. and, and, and became right. the embodiment of a new moment. Um, and so- Right, he would be messing around with someone like me after that. Yeah. But when you look back at that exchange uh -huh. uh, where he refers to you as, you know, maybe the best, you know, opinion writer in America and so on and speaks of you with great reverence, but also in his own way, in, in his own mind and in the mind of his audience, yeah. which is a new audience, bringing a perspective that had for the most part not been represented in media, yeah. you know, so, sort of he, he says to there's this moment in the, 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 in the piece where he says, okay, yes, it's true. Fighting someone, and, and this concerns you know, a piece that he wrote where the instincts of the street almost caused him to physically assault someone mm -hmm. in a magazine office, which would have you know, resulted in his, uh, the loss of his job. Yeah. But then he goes on to say that the street also taught me... <laughs> Right, like not to trust the the American story, the sort of the version of the mid-century American story that that was sort of at the heart of New Republic type liberalism, or the liberalism that you were that you were defending yeah. and standing up for in that exchange. Obama liberalism. Yeah. But such an interesting moment where he says, "The instinct of the street." Help me survive the street, um, and my uh, hostility to the liberal narrative, or my hostility to the lies that are encoded and that are pervasive in the American story, it, it's good. <laughs> it's actually helping me make my career. He's noticing at that moment that it's doing that, rather than what... What the claim of pervasive, continuing, unchanging white supremacy, right, would say. Because if that were the case, he would not be able to make his bones by insisting upon this argument that hitherto had been through the street. Yeah. It, and, it, and, it, and it is not new to him. It is not fresh to him. It is new and it is fresh to the Atlantic reading audience who were enormously stimulated and moved by it resulting in a sea change in public opinion um, led by these institutions sort of that had uh, until then, I, I think for the most part, and I, I don't think uh, maybe more passively than actively, sort of gatekept that perspective, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, and then it sort of, and it, it made its way through academia and so yeah. on. But it was something that you would be more likely to hear from a guy with a bow tie holding a newspaper, you know, at Atlantic Center in Brooklyn, right? Then you would, then you would somebody writing in the New York Times Magazine or in the Atlantic. I think and, it's been in academia for a long time, and mm -hmm. I think it may. I, I, I think that 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 viewpoint has been pretty well represented in academia, but not in places like the Atlantic, but um, in mainstream media. Now it is. Yeah. And and so that was, I think, that exchange was the very moment of its breakthrough. Do, do, do you feel that to be the case? or it, I don't want to overrate the yeah. role I had. But, um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I, one thing I did notice when, when I had that debate was I had a lot of people on the left who were trying to explain to me that the rules are um, that, when, that the, the, the black person is the authority 
on the subject, and the white person has to learn from it. And, and some of them were coming to me in a very, you know, in a very angry way, like, "What are you doing arguing with Tanahashi coach? Like, the fact that you're arguing with Tanahashi coach shows that you're wrong. Like, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're you're trying to explain to the teacher, and the teacher's trying to explain to you. Um, and some people were doing it in a sort of nice way, like, "You poor man, let me help you. You don't understand what what what's, what you're doing." <laughs> So reflective and immediate deference is prescribed to you by, by by your respective racial identities. That's right. That's right. And look, and and, and um, you know, I think there are broadly speaking three ways of three schools, three broad schools of looking at this. There's there's the left wing position, the one that we were just describing. There's the right wing position, which would 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 go for you know sort of total standpoint neutrality. We're all going to be debating. And reasoning um, abstracted entirely from our identities. Um, I think the liberal position try, that I, at least the one that I try to advocate, is sort of finding a middle space between them and saying, "Look, we we need to be aware of viewpoint and where it's coming from." From you know, if you want to talk, you can have an abstract debate, but if it's one of those rooms that that Coates was talking about in a place like the New Republic, but in any other magazine of the 80s or 90s, or everyone's white, um, you're going to be missing something, right? You can you can be you can debate as much as you want, but you're going to be missing something if people aren't well represented. So I think you need to account for people's identity to some extent, while still allowing them to reason their way through through problems and not just defer um, automatically to someone on the basis of identity. Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You're listening to the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack, where listeners can support this work that I'm doing. WesleyYang.substack.com. So, what were some of the other conditioning events? You know, you did mention that. Charlie Hebdo events. Mm-hmm. I don't think you did mention the cancel Colbert thing that had happened some months before, but then there was also the yeah. Christakis thing. All of these things in succession right. were starting to impinge upon us, right. and we, we started becoming aware. I don't think in the 80s and 90s there it was to the same degree that they used a rhetoric of trauma and harm and hurt emotions as the basis, or am I mistaken about that? No, I think you're right. I, th- I think mm. you're absolutely right that 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 the, that the the harm idea was definitely there. Um, the idea mm-hmm. that that hate speech is is harmful, um, and that hate and that and that speech is a zero sum conflict between oppressor and oppressed. That there's no such thing as as having better rules or bad rules. The only question is is whether the oppressor or the oppressor is advan- is advantaged in the situation. That was there. But you're right about expressing it in these um these therapeutic terms. I think is is a Right. The therapeutic terms. And then, we, you know, we have this argument that, well, in practice, the powerful have always had free speech at their disposal yeah. um, and, 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 and the powerless. Um, but that's, that, that seems to be actually quite wrong uh, from the history of the civil rights movement. And, uh, and yeah. so, you, you know, so you went on to make this argument that um, make, making your enemies afraid to speak is, is, is not the way to win, but actually exercising your freedom of speech. Um, at a fundamental level, it, those are totally unexceptionable 
opinions for which for which no one can really gainsay them. And and something that you noticed in your reply to your replies was that nobody actually did. And in fact, many people hasten to say, yes, I see many of the same problems that 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 Chait sees. Yeah. Nonetheless, there's this social process that was operating such that like it still was necessary for everyone to kind of find a hook to hold you at arm's length, denigrate, gainsay without actually taking a stand on the issues. And the fact that they all did it at once, they all did it more or less in the same way, yeah. meant that there was some rule that that was implicit that they were that they were sort of making us aware of by all obeying it and yet we uh, and yet without ever directly articulating it how how did that structure of obedience and how did that how did everybody know that there was a rule that they had to obey to operate in in, in just this way and yet somehow everybody did because they all obeyed in the same way <laughs> and what was that rule i'm always hesitant to try to um, understand people's motives or yeah. even try to guess at people's motives. I mean, I I know a lot of the people who responded personally didn't like me, you know. Uh, or, I mean, uh, personally, I've never met them, right? But they don't like my right. role. They don't like yeah. my place in it. So, like, they would they would say this about any any time I critique the left, they they would they would be likely to pop up. So I th I think that informed it to a to a to a significant degree. Like being the person being the liberal who criticizes the left. Um, you know, it gave me a role that, that that primed them. I think more than anything else, I really think that played an important role. Um, you know, I don't. I, I I could guess at their motives, but I just I just I just don't want to. What what? Uh, not so much personal motives, yeah. <laughs> but like some larger discursive process was making it so that the same thing was being repeated. There yeah. was some structure of social obedience. That every there was some principle there, and uh, I'm not sure we exactly know what it was, but we could yeah. all feel it. There was something that they were not allowed to do, and something that it was necessary for them to do. And and you couldn't just be like, ah, the guy's got a point, you know. <laughs> there were some people who did. There were some people yeah. who did. Um, Rebecca Schoenkopf did. Um, Michelle Goldberg did. Um, you had, you had, you had a handful of people who wrote who wrote some supportive things. So it was right. And, and, it wasn't unanimous. Mm -hmm. And Goldberg had written a piece also in her way decrying cancel culture and, mm -hmm. and had been through the gauntlet herself uh, yeah. in, an even, in an even more perilous setting in, in the nation rather than yeah. New York Magazine. Yeah. But then, of course, you know, this is it's um, it's early 2015. Yeah. And um, the, the sort of identity politics question of the time is going to be what we assume will be the nomination of Hillary Clinton. And so we have to go back to that, that, that kind of, um, you know, it was about gender. Mm -hmm. It was about women yeah. and it was about, and then it was about, you know, what we all expected to be our first uh, female president. Um, and then of course, Things took uh, things took a turn that I, I don't think many anticipated in 2015 and, from there, the the kind of the cascade and the frenzy. Yeah. How often did you think back to you know to the the the, the idea about um, political correctness? You know, back in ascendancy that you wrote back then, and 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 how did how did it evolve over the years as the initial narrative just kept getting 
bigger and crazier and encompassing more and more and resulting in ever more meltdowns and yeah. and struggle sessions. Yeah, I mean, I think the Trump era made this problem so much worse. Um, and I don't think it's very hard to figure out why. Um, number one, um, what this um, ideology thrives on is uh, maximal peril, you know, in, in framing every question in, in binary maximal terms, right, between good and evil and racist versus non-racist, sexist versus non-sexist. And, and, and Donald Trump um, not only helps you do that, but the fact that he himself was denouncing political correctness made him made it so easy to say the only people who disagree with this are 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 the racists and sexists like Donald Trump, who mm-hmm. don't even care about free speech or liberalism at all, which he obviously didn't, right? When mm. because you know he was like out there canceling Colin Kaepernick and and you know et cetera et cetera. Um, so. So, you know, he was freaking people out. He was shoving racism and sexism in everybody's face every day. He was putting the worst possible face on the response to the left and, and, and just aggravating the problem as, as badly as he possibly could. So I don't think it's any surprise that, 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 this, that this phenomenon was cranked up. Um, to an enormous degree over his presence. And were you sort of getting messages from people, look what you helped to empower by Every criticizing day. political correctness? Every day. Yep. <laughs> did you ever have a moment where you thought, oh, well, uh, maybe I did? Or uh, how, how did you think about it at the time? No. Um, no, I mean, I just, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a good argument. Um, I don't, Look, people on the extremes always want to collapse the debate into a binary, right? That's their greatest advantage because the near enemy is more dangerous than the far enemy. The same thing happens on the right. The exact same debate happens on the right, right? You see, when when there are moderate conservatives criticize the extreme conservatives, the extreme conservatives say, "See what you've done. Look at look mm. at what the far left is doing. That you own that. Look at the critical race theory. You own that. You did that, David French, by criticizing the extreme, right? By criticizing Donald Trump, you gave us the far left. So the the far left wants to do that to the to the center left. Um, that's just." Um, I mean, I suppose they believe that, but that's also just a tactic. So in, in July of, of 2020, and you referred to this moment where things really seem to be at at their heights. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we refer now to, you referred to Douthat pleading for the moderate left to, to win out. Yeah. But you know, I, I guess uh, they, they 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 pushed out James Bennett. They they yeah. for for uh, allowing the wrong person to speak at the wrong moments. Yeah. They the, the the what had once been a campus tactic um, about harm and trauma and endangering people yeah. uh, actually actually managed to get a person that many perceived as the heir apparent of the whole paper pushed out. By saying that, like, oh, you're endangering certain categories of people by, yeah. you know, by publishing this story, and so, so it meant that this thing that had, 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 had uh, originated in call-out cultures among <clears throat> anarchists in, in in the 80s and 90s, yeah. now suddenly was at the very center yeah. of the liberal establishment, yeah. and it conditioned the way coverage what was covered and was not covered 
in, in, in 2020. It resulted, of course, in the pushing out of, uh, you know, of David Shore for saying that there may be electoral disadvantage in, in allowing ourselves to be, uh, you know, the Democratic Party to be associated in people's minds with the defense of, yeah. uh, you know, a violent protest. Which I, I, I reported. Uh, I mean, that's like the only story I've broken in my entire life. So I just want to make sure I get credit for my only reporting scoop of my life. Oh, so you, so you, you had that scoop? Uh, yeah. Yeah. This wasn't, this was like people were wondering about it, but no one had reported it. I reported it. Yeah. Okay. So you were, were you, were you in the room or you, you just kind of heard of it and then reported it out? No, I heard about it and then I reported it out. Yeah. Uh, and so that was a kind of uh, height. Did you? Did it seem like we had then entered another, uh, you know, another phase from which we would never come back? Or that's a good question. Like, did I think this was just going to keep going on and on? The future would be, you know, uh, um, the, the you know a, a boot stamping on a face forever. Um, I didn't know. I mean, I really didn't know. We, I had a lot of conversations with my friends in all, mm. you know. I'm not saying they, they represent all walks of life. <laughs> I live in Washington, uh, D.C. There aren't that many walks of life to represent. <laughs> but they were, all, they were seeing it in, in, in different places in, in academia, in, you know, in, in, in other parts of the private, private and public sector. Um, right. We didn't really know what, what, was, what was going to happen. But it was definitely a, a perilous moment. And, and just to go back to what you were saying before, um, one of the most common responses I got from the beginning in 2015 was this is just happening on campus. It was campus teens was the word you'd get all the time. This is, this is, no, sorry, it's college teens. Um, mm -hmm. um, even when it was coming from administrators on campus. And, and in the, if you look at my first article, it wasn't entirely about things that were happening on campus at all. The whole binders full of women writers was not, was professional, professional women writers. Um, um, but that was the number one response is it's just college hijinks and they'll grow on. So people who couldn't defend that stuff, it was very easy for them to dismiss it by insisting it was just happening on campus. Even if you showed them, it wasn't. That was what they just automatically went to. I think that was a very convenient thing for them to believe because it wouldn't cause them to have to criticize their political allies because it was just it was just a phase that kids were going through. Mm, but yeah. I think it was you're absolutely right that by 2020, it was impossible for, for people to pretend that that was the case. Right. And so I think what happened was... The first phase of it, people yeah. in the 80s and 90s, they did not then go out and have the power to transform various liberal institutions, but they were able to insinuate themselves into positions where in 20 years, when a next phase of it emerged, they could, you know, rather, they could be in a position to, to hasten it, to protect it, to empower it, uh, whether as university administrators or... Mm -hmm. Or as editors, or just people sharing in a general, overall milieu that had shifted. You know, like yeah. in the '80s and '90s when Harper's and the New Republic were in, you know, sort of encountering the first wave of this, and pretty much successfully, I think, put a kind of cordon sanitaire around yeah. it. And then, and then, sort of in the '90s, and then, you know, we moved on to concerns about war and um, financial crisis, and then, and then suddenly. What seemed to many like this amazing turn with the sudden emergence of Barack Obama, uh, you know, representing in a kind of, you know, apotheosis of a certain sort of racial liberalism, right? And, but, you know, by, by the end of his term, um, you know, by the end of his second term, 
having attained that apotheosis, you know, we actually saw the limits of what it actually meant, right? Like in, in terms of, you know, sort of black Americans, you know, they exited his presidency with less wealth than they entered it mostly because of, you know, sort of the, the, the financial crisis and the lingering results of it. And so, and then, and then, you know, that was the moment where these new movements that had been, th these new movements, they had been well represented in academe, but they had, they, um, they were able to, they were able to reach not just through social media, but also through, you know, other media. They, they, and through figures like Ta-Nehisi Coates in particular, you know, they were able to take their brand of critique and, and it was, a, it was a new thing. It was a fresh thing. It was an exciting thing. It was a stimulating thing for, for the Atlantic uh, audience. You know, I recall, uh, who was it that said that, you know, it was necessary like air and so on. And, uh, right. you know, um, so there, there was, uh, and then, but there, there was all this, and then there was also like what social media showed us mm -hmm. in terms of these, you know, events that were captured on video and, and then the emotions that could be summoned up through social media. And then the way that there, then there were sort of a whole structure of people throughout media, um, to, um, Take that emotion and then use it as, as as ways to generate engagement to make an important part of the business model of the of the publications, and the the kind of you know the old perspective uh, just ceased to be um, a, a thing that was welcome, <laughs> and and uh, and yet um, and yet now we've you know we've been through we've been through it and. And, and I believe you now see a kind of a kind of turn on this as well, yeah. um, and and it may have something to do with uh, you know the, these ideas ended up critical race theory ideas that Henry Louis Gates Jr. Uh, you know did did an excellent job dismantling back in, in 1991 in the New Republic uh, suddenly has something like hegemony among school teachers or there, there is a, a consensus that these are ideas that we should teach and in the process of being made you know turned into pedagogy for youngsters um has, has um i'm not sure there is a that consensus i mean i don't want to get on a long tangent it's it's, de it's definitely appearing in public schools how yeah. widely is very hard for me to say, right? There's so many schools in this country. You could find a new example of it every single day and you'd still only have a tiny minority. So I'm not saying it's not, but to me, that's a, that's a question mark. Right. Um, uh, well, but I do want to kind of circle back. Uh, one of the interesting things is uh, looking back at Greenwald's response to your, to your uh because now he's taking a very different position yes. on these th these kinds of issues. Although, you know, it was consistent in the sense that... Can we, you, you're talking about Greenwald's response to the piece that wrote in 2015, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. Can we quote it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Do you have it? Oh, yeah. Do you have it in front of you? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm clicking on it, so I want it. Oh. I, I think it's really... Um, the headline is The Petulant Entitlement Syndrome of Journalists. The world would be vastly improved if highly paid journalists like Jonathan Jade stopped whining about mean online critics. <laughs> uh, pseudo oppression, people like himself, journalist friends, steadily, steadfastly ignoring the more serious ways that people with views, chase dislikes, are penalized and repressed, etc. It's a PC culture. I don't know. It's just, 
It's just this song. <laughs> Green Wall today. Um, I, I think it, I think it's a it's a good. I, I might I might actually want to want to ask him about it. It, it is a good. Uh, it's a great example of someone who went on a journey over over these last seven years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So often people and, and I see them moving. I say, you got to move. You got to move. All right, enough. Stop. Stop. You've got to move. Okay, great. Uh, anything else you want to say or uh boy no i mean this has been a really this has been a really terrific discussion um okay uh well thanks a lot this has been a great conversation thanks for having me on bye-bye Thanks for listening to the third installment of The Road to Year Zero, which is one of three podcast series that I'm working on concurrently, all tied in together with a general project that is at the heart of my Substack, wesleyyang.substack.com, in which we are tracing the short and long run determinants that produced what I refer to as the ideological succession. Some of the themes and references that we made in passing or looked at in this episode will receive longer and more sustained attention in episodes to come. Those episodes include, of course, the Charlie Hebdo controversy, the rise to ascendancy of Ta-Nehisi Coates, and the Nicholas Christakis affair, wherein Christakis came to become the subject of a struggle session in the quad of one of Yale's residential colleges. The very next episode will be returning to my syllabus series, wherein I spend a certain amount of time with a noted expert in the field doing a deep dive into a particular subject, in this case with law and political science professor Shep Melnick. And we'll be looking at a classic essay in the field of political science by the law professor Robert A. Kagan. This essay was the one that coined the term adversarial legalism, one of the key building blocks of successor ideology. I'll be posting the complete syllabus for subscribers to my Substack soon. This is a paid subscriber-only feature, and over time we'll be assembling an archive of what I expect to be very engrossing conversations, lectures, and discussions with a range of academic experts. We'll be doing a combination of both topical reading and remedial reading. The interview with Chait ended a little bit abruptly, but that's okay because every loose end is an opportunity for further elaboration as we continue our analysis, dissection, and reminiscence of the road to year zero. 